Thanks, Terry and the team for leading us in such great worship. Christ is our living hope, and we have every reason to believe that he is continuing to do a great work in us to make us the people he wants us to be. These are exciting times. This is a great day to be here and uh, to share this wonderful morning at Lawndale. Uh, It is especially exciting if you will pay attention. There's a new pastor sitting right over there. Come on, let's praise God. We're so grateful. Rodney and Donna being here. It's a joy to have you guys here. And, uh, you know, the sacrificial spirit of a pastor is so important. And he's listening to this sermon the second time. Sacrificial <laughs> spirit, indeed, indeed. So praise God for that. I thought Kathy was the only one, and she did that just because she's married to me. So uh, to have your pastor here, it's what a joy to have you guys here. What a blessing it's been for us to be here. Uh, as I mentioned last week, today we're going to be talking about how the church expects to fulfill its ministry by responding well when a new pastor comes on board. What does the scripture tell us about that? And how are we supposed to function in that capacity as the people who will bring most honor to God and bring joy to the heart of the new pastor? You want to do that, right? Yes, David, we do want to do that. That's good. We're going to have a good time looking at the word together. I'm going to be looking at a passage in Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 15. Read together that, pray together, and want to dive right into the word. We want to understand what it means for us to do what that passage said in Philippians 2 a couple of weeks ago, to work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. How do we walk in the fear of God, and how does that shape our expectation for what it means to recognize that God will hold us accountable. Even as he holds the pastor accountable here for you, he holds us accountable as we live in a way that brings honor to Christ. So let's listen to the word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 15. Through him, that is Christ, through him then, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would not be profitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that uh, I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be that kind of equipped people who know what it is to honor and exalt you in every way, to walk as sheep who are blameless before the shepherd, the good shepherd Christ, that you are in every way making us worthy of you by shaping us and conforming us to the image of Christ. And so we pray that as we hear the word this morning, that in every time we encounter the living word of God and every time your spirit takes us to the scriptures, Something happens in our hearts. Lord, may it today bring the greatest honor and glory to Jesus. And we will praise you for that privilege in Christ's name. Amen. We will miss coming to Greensboro. 
starting next week, but uh, the Lord has prepared the way for you to be able to welcome a new pastor next week. Now, here's the thing that I just have to be honest with you. We're not going to miss Interstate 85 and 40. We're just not going to miss that. I mean, you know, that drive is great, and it's a beautiful highway, and I'm glad we're not going out through the country. It's a nice interstate, so we're glad. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's a drive over here and back every week, and, and, and yet, somehow or another, I'm blessed because as we're riding over here, we leave Raleigh before 7 on Sunday mornings to get over here, and I'm not sure everybody on the highway is awake. And so I'm watching carefully as we go along because the truth is uh, all of us have had the experience. We, we're driving when we should have been sleeping, and we kind of merge them together sometimes to the uh, danger of everybody around us. So several years ago, Kathy and I were a part of a group over in uh, Burlington area that did ministry around the state and around the region, really. And uh, several years after we left, there was one of the groups that was still operating out of Burlington, and they would go and do concerts and ministry around uh, this area. And so late one Sunday night, they were driving back home, heading back from a time of ministry, and as they're riding along, uh, one of the guys in the back just sort of went, hey, what's going on? And he, and he looks, and, and the whole van is just doing this. And as he says, what's going on, everybody else in the van wakes up, including the driver. <clears throat> They're driving down the median. They're not even on the highway. They're just riding down the median. And so he just flips on the turn signal, merges back into traffic, and none's the wiser, right? And so the response to that was, you know, I'll tell you what, that will put the fear of God in you. I mean, your, your heart is up in your throat. You're, you're just... I don't know if you've ever had that happen. I pray that it has not, and I pray that it never happens to me again. But that moment when you realize, I don't remember where I just was. And uh, everybody on the highway saying, well, you were in my lane, my lane, my lane, and my lane. You know, and so there's a safety factor that's involved there. But this fear of the Lord thing, we, we need to learn what that means to not just have a crisis event cause us to think that we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. Every time we get up in the morning and realize what faces us in the day, there's a sense in which someone should be able to say to us and receive a good welcome of that comment, that will put the fear of the Lord in you. Just waking up to face a day, knowing that our God has a need to be adorned with praise. Yes, he says that here, to lips of praise, honoring him, but also to respect him and reverence him as the God who is to be feared. Jimmy read about the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when we see him, he says, I saw the Lord. He's high and lifted up in his train filled the temple. And the angels cried holy. And there's that sense in which there is a holy reverence, a mighty awe, a fear that comes upon us. That's how we're supposed to live. Knowing that one day we will give an account. Nowhere is that more important than in the body of Christ. Somehow or another, we get immune to it. We, we like to talk about being vaccinated, inoculated with the COVID-19 stuff. But somehow or another, we have become inoculated to the reality that at all times, we are to be walking in the fear of God as the people of God. And so as we're thinking through today, how do you onboard a new pastor? How do you bring a new shepherd into the church? The, the answer from the scriptures is pretty simple. In the fear of God. For him and for you, we walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, when that doesn't happen, all kinds of crazy mess starts taking place. 
Romans chapter 3, we know is the passage that talks about all the sin and falling short of the glory of God. But prior to that, it says God is looking for righteous ones. He's looking for people who are walking in the truth, who understand what it means to really live for the God who created them. And he gets to verse 18, and he says it wasn't happening. There was no one that he could find. And his reason for that, explained in verse 18, he says no one feared God. They had no fear of God before their eyes. And therefore, they were living as if there were no consequences to the decisions they made, the statements they made, the actions that came out of their attitudes. He says there was no fear of God before their eyes. We as the body of Christ cannot afford to live without the fear of God. We ought to be able to look at our ministry together with fear and trepidation. We ought to figure out, the Philippians 2, how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and know that as we function together, there are implications for all of what that looks like. Now, here's the great news in all of this. We have to recognize that if we are that kind of people who walk in the fear of God, that God honors that and brings blessing and fruitfulness on a church that does that. So here's the first exhortation from the text this morning, be a people who walk in the fear of God. Be that kind of people. Any pastor would love that kind of flock. Now, periodically, Rodney yells out amen over here. You'll understand where it's coming from. And, and Donna, every now and then, is going to elbow him and say, yeah, you ought to amen that. If you didn't, I'm going to. And, and so that's a part of what we have to understand. We need to make sure that we're living out what we believe, that our confession and our conduct match. Walking in the fear of God. Now, that means that we put feet on our faith. We take what we say we believe by faith, trusting in God, believing God. We put feet on that. And that's where the passage from Philippians 2, as I mentioned a while ago, comes back in. We are to work it out. God has worked it into our character in Christ. And now we're to work out that salvation with fear and with trembling. Because it matters. There are consequences when we don't. And so as we walk through this, we want to understand how do we perfect the fear of God in our hearts? How do we make sure that that is operable in each one of us? We don't want to do anything in any way to damage the relationship we have with the living God. We don't want to damage the relationships we have among ourselves. And clearly, we don't want to damage the relationship we have with our shepherds those who are the, the pastors of the flock. We want to be able to walk in the fear of God. So how do we do that? Well, let me suggest out of the many places in the scriptures we could go, about four different things I want us to listen to the word of God speaking this morning. One is that if we're thinking about perfecting fear in the Lord, and how do we do that in our hearts? One, we have to rec recognize that we have to have a fear of offending him. Let's be honest, sometimes we don't care. We say something we know we shouldn't have. We watch something that we shouldn't have. Kathy and I last night said, well, let's, this is recommended to us. Turn it on and watch it. We started watching. I'm not even going to tell you what it was because we're embarrassed. I mean, we, we realize that we're, we're watching. This is, this is offensive. This is in multiple. We, no, no, we can't do this. And, and we have this sense in which we need to walk in the fear of offending the God who has graciously given all things for us to be able to know him through Christ. And so in, in Acts 24, for example, it says, in view of these things, he says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and men. 
I don't want to do anything to offend him. And so in second, uh, first, excuse me, Second Corinthians six, he says, I want to give no cause for offense in anything, not not to you who I'm writing to, not to God who I, I serve. I, I want to give no offense. Nothing about my behavior, nothing that would damage the relationship with Christ. And secondly, not just the fear of offending him, but I want to fear dishonoring him. Well, isn't that the same thing? Well, it's very similar, but it's not exactly the same. Because what I can do sometimes is dishonor his name because I'm wearing his name. I am now a child of the king. I am one who has been adopted into his family. I am a Christ follower. In our culture, we call those folks Christians sometimes. And so whenever I do something that is contrary to what he desires, I bring dishonor to him. There was an article, I think it was in the New York Times, as we talking about, uh, we know the true character of evangelicals because we saw what they did at the, at the Capitol on January 6th. No, no, you don't. Obviously, first of all, you don't know what an evangelical is if you think what they were doing was representative of evangelical thinking. But what happened is that those who took that name as evangelical followers of Christ, they took dishonor upon that name. And now we've all got to help correct that impression. Because when we dishonor a name, man, it, it takes a long time to get that name back. That's, that's why none of you got the cute little baby boys in your arms when you gave birth and said, you know what, I think we ought to name this one Judas. What a precious little Judas this one is. You know, you don't do that. You, you don't name that cute little girl Jezebel. You know, hey, little Jezebel, you're going to grow up to be a horrible human being. You know, that's, we don't do that. Why? Because someone has already dishonored the name. Somebody has already besmirched it. And so we want to walk before God and perfect fear in our lives by having a fear of offending God and having a fear, secondly, of dishonoring his name. Thirdly, we want to make sure that we're not grieving him. Ephesians says in verse 30 of chapter 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve God. Don't, don't cause God to, to look at you and say, I am so disappointed in you. As a kid, we grew up in an era where I had three brothers and four of us were always in trouble. And uh, there was always opportunity because they didn't know any better. We got spanked. Civil social services didn't come and get my parents. They wanted to spank us too. Uh, I mean, it was, just, it was just sort of, you know, that was it. And, and so, you know, you do something wrong. It's like, okay, I kind of get through my punishment. Here's the time to get my spanking. Yeah, I get that. And then once in a while... It wouldn't happen. It was worse. And I'm not talking about grounding. It was them saying, I'm so disappointed in you. Beat me with a stick. Don't tell me you're disappointed in me. I'll stay in my room without food and water or anything for a month. Just don't tell me you're disappointed in me. Because see, the, the immediate, quick consequence, I can handle that. It's the, the disappointment thing means that I've got to come back in and rebuild trust. I've got to restore relationship. I've got to, to help them change their expectations that, yes, I can be a good boy again. I don't want to disappoint the Lord God, grieve his spirit in any way. So that I have a fear of, of grieving the Lord that shapes my character. I have to keep watch over my life so that I avoid those things which would grieve him. Fourthly, I, I don't want to misrepresent him. 
I want to have a, a good, healthy fear of, of being able to speak to someone about Christ and them not throw it back at me and saying, you know what, uh, I've, I've seen your behavior. And if that's what it is, no thank you. You represent Christ. Um, I don't want any part of him. I have misrepresented him in some way. I have, have conveyed a message about him that's not accurate. I, I, I have a fear of doing that. And uh, the scriptures in First Peter chapter 3 is talking about wives wanting to lead their husbands to know Christ, to have faith in the Savior. And he says, look, uh, it's, it's not by you preaching to them. You can speak the word, and that's fine. But what has to happen is that you want to win them by your chaste and respectful behavior. Translate it another way in the NIV. It says, by the purity and the reverence of your lives. That word reverence, having the idea of revered or, or awestruck or, or fearful of God. And therefore, it measures your response to him. Another translation says that your chaste behavior coupled with a fear of God. And so he's, he's saying in the scriptures, have a holy fear of misrepresenting God by not doing what he's called you to do. So have a fear of offending him, dishonoring, a fear of grieving him, or a fear of misrepresenting him. The kind of walk that God wants in us is to be recognized as something that is seen as these people walk in the fear of God. What pastor would not want to come to a church that has been described to him as, well, I can't tell you a lot about that place except this. I know this. That's a church that walks in the fear of God. Yeah, I want to I be at that church. I wanna, I'll move from Charlotte to, to Greensboro for that, maybe. Yeah, this, is, this is what Rodney's coming. He's, he's expecting to join a battalion of the Lord's soldiers marching into battle with each knowing they've got each other's backs because we all fear God together. That's what he wants to see happen among us. We want to have an accurate reflection of the glory of Christ here, and we know we're going to be held accountable for it one day. <clears throat> we want to walk in the fear of God. Any pastor would love to pastor that kind of church. So what does that look like in practical terms? Well, if you're going to be a people who walk in the fear of God, secondly then, be a congregation that welcomes godly pastoral leadership in the fear of God. Let the fear of the Lord shape how you treat your pastor. Now, Honestly, uh, this is the kind of sermon that every pastor wants to preach at his home church. This is an away game sermon. <laughs> yeah, this is when you preach when you're somewhere else. So I'm, I'm doing this for you, Rod. And so I'm, I'm telling you what he'd love to tell you, but it would sound self-serving if he said it. I'm just the guy that's leaving town this afternoon. So uh, here's, here's what it looks like. We need to understand how we are to treat our pastor and we do so in the context of, I wouldn't do anything that would in any way indicate that I don't do this in the fear of God. I won't say anything, I won't do anything that would bring consequences if I'm walking in the fear of God. So I've got to keep in the back of my mind, I am operating in the fear of God. And if I do that, then that makes it a whole lot easier to be able to make this work. So how do we welcome Godly pastoral leadership. Well, first of all, just a disclaimer. To start off and make sure we got this understood. No pastor claims infallibility or perfection. Right? We don't do that. No pastor begs for a pedestal to stand on. That's not what a shepherd of the flock does. 
because at the very best of his days, on his most excellent moments, he is an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. All right? So he doesn't ever claim that. Now, there's something that happens, and we, we do get it, and we're not, we're not foolish enough to think that it doesn't ever happen. Sometimes in pastoral ministry, we, we know, we've got experience in our backgrounds to tell us this, sometimes there's something about standing behind a desk with a spotlight on it and a microphone on us that will sometimes, it'll grow the, the, the mind, it'll expand our brains, but it'll shrink our hearts. We'll, we'll start to think better of ourselves than we are, and our hearts begin to shrink, and our, our minds begin to swell, and that's not godly. So we, we start off by saying, no, no pastor claims to be perfect. Can pastors get it wrong? Yes, they can. Say amen, Rodney. Pastors can get it wrong, but not nearly as often as people tell them that they do. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that, that sense in which we, we need to understand something. We need to recognize that we, we give the presumption of innocence, not just in the court of law, but to those in pastoral leadership and to the lead pastors of the flock. How do we do that? How, how is that supposed to work? Well, first of all, we, we need to make sure that, that fallibility is not fatal. So therefore, what has to happen? We give our pastors the grace to fail. I don't want none failing preacher. No, well, you got one, whether you want it or not. He's a human being like you are. You're a failure. Apart from the grace of Christ, you would be a doomed failure. Can anything else encouraging to tell us, Horner? Well, yeah, <laughs> Jesus saves from what you were and makes you who he wants you to be. So live that way in the fear of God and give your pastor the grace to fail. What happens when you don't give him the grace to fail? Well, what happens is that they begin to work in the world to accommodate that culture. They're going to get in a position where they, they're not going to try anything that requires faith. Because if they try something that requires faith and they can't point out where every dollar is going to come from, where every result is going to be, and what every consequence is going to if they can't plan all that out and say it, then, then we're not going to do that. You don't want that kind of guy as your pastor. You want a guy who's willing to say, hey, by faith this is what we're endeavoring by the Spirit of God. Well, how do you know it'll work? I don't. You do understand that's not inspiring a lot of confidence in you. No, it should inspire a sense of camaraderie here. Because you do a lot of stuff you don't know is going to work either. But can I operate in faith and know that if it doesn't work out, you're not going to chop me off of the knees and throw me out the door and go get somebody else who you can treat the same way? No. Grace to fail means that you give them opportunity to, by faith, do things that may not always work. But if they don't try them, you don't want them as your pastor if they're going to always pick the safest way around. Or if they're plenty safe, what will happen on the other side is that they might be tempted to be less than transparent with you. Well, they didn't tell us everything. No, they didn't because past experience told them if he told you half of it, you'd make up the other half and then slam them with it. No, no, you, you've got to have grace to fail. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's talking about love. It says love doesn't keep, doesn't rejoice of wrongdoing. It doesn't keep score 
of things that didn't work out well. That's not the way it works. Love, love gives grace to fail. It gives you the benefit of the doubt. It gives you that sweet sense of being able to believe the best. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt there because I believe you intended that well. It didn't work out, right? But that's okay because we're going to all learn from this mistake and we're going to move on from there. But sometimes we just do things that don't always work out the way we expected it to, right? I hope, I hope that's true of the rest of you because I know it's true about me. Kathy, years ago, started talking about something that I found profoundly helpful. And she says, everybody ought to kind of have a little satchel or packet or something hooked to their belt. <clears throat> it's a little pocket, and it's filled with dumb chips. D-U-M-B-C-H-I-P-S, dumb chips. And when somebody does something that you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, you surely couldn't have meant that to sound as dumb as that sounded. <clears throat> you, you couldn't possibly have intended that to be as mean-spirited as it actually sounded. You look really tired today. Here's a dumb chip. Because <laughs> you didn't possibly know how bad that sounded to me. Because it said to me, you look horrible. That's what you said, but that's not what you meant. So here's a dumb chip. Or, or you, you have somebody do something that, you know, hey, you cut them off in the parking lot as they're coming into church and realize, uh-oh. <laughs> if you cut them out on battleground, that's one thing. But if you cut them off cutting in the pr- church parking lot, you realize you're going to have to say, hey, I love you in Jesus' name when you walk into church. <clears throat> and so they cut you off and you say, hey, bless your heart. Here's a dumb chip. <laughs> you know, you didn't mean to do that. I'm sure you didn't think that getting into the worship service to glorify God by doing something stupid to me is going to be a good thing. And so we, we do that. She had a, an opportunity with me to, to counsel uh, four teenage kids who lost their dad. And I sat there in awe, awe as she said, you know what? And she told them about the dumb chip concept. They're going to be people, people who say things and they're intending to, to be helpful. And they're adults who just go brain dead for a minute. And they'll say stuff, you know, well, your dad's in a better place now. Okay, that's true. But how is that helpful to a 17-year-old grieving child? Or, you know, it's just it's going to turn out for the best. <laughs> Here's your dumb chip. You know, just, I know you mean well, or, you know, well, it could have been a lot worse. There's a handful of them. And we saw them a couple months later, and they said, man, that was so helpful. We emptied it out daily. Uh, you know, there's just so many things. And so when, when we have a pastor, we want to make sure that we give him the benefit of the doubt and give him this believing the best of him. You know, I know you didn't mean it to turn out that way. And it did. Let's learn from it. Let's go on. And so there's this grace that you give pastors to fail. Secondly, you give them the opportunity to listen to the voice of God and not always be trying to shape their responses to the voices of the people. What does God want? Not what are the people saying. I've heard so many things in the secular world describing the church. Well, that's a church that really is, is a needs-based ministry. I don't want to ever be a needs-based ministry. You say, well, you hard-hearted rascal? No, no, no. I, I want to respond to needs. But the basis is I want to glorify Christ. If I glorify Christ, I will meet needs. If I try to meet needs only apart from Christ, I won't either meet needs or glorify Christ. So I, I don't want to be a, a people who's just constantly got a, you know, listening 
and got my finger to the wind to see what's happening, and, and I, then I'll respond and go that way. No. Years ago, someone says, you know, in the balcony, there are the balcony voices that are, oh, preacher, that was the best sermon I ever heard, or, oh, that was the best looking, you know, tie you wore Sunday, or, or oh, pastor, that was the most wonderful uh, program we had last Sunday night for the kids. Oh, it was, oh, it's just, everything's just wonderful. You want to take them home with you. Those are the gracious people. You just want to love on and say, come spend time with me. And then you got the seller voices. Eeyores in the church. I heard the sermon, and I've heard worse, but I don't remember when. You know, oh, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Is there anybody else that would like to say anything? You know, uh, Dr. Hendricks from How- uh, Dallas Seminary said, you know, that time when you used to go out of the back of the church and the pastors are shaking everybody's hands as they come by. He called it the exalting of the worm ceremony. <laughs> I love it. People come by, you know, the balcony voice, oh, pastor, was great. And I said, well, when are you going to be shorter when you preach? You know, how long are you going to go? And, and you get those balcony cellar voices competing. The truth is on the main floor. And it's when Christ speaks and you learn from both the balcony and the cellar that he has got a truth there. And we want our pastors to be able to listen to the voice of God. Amen. Not to our voice, not to our complaint, not to our groaning, not to our suggestions, criticisms. We want them to hear the voice of God above everything else. Got to give them opportunity to do that. That's this whole idea of perfecting this fear in the Lord, walking with him. No pastor claims that perfection alone. So you give him a grace to fail. You give him room to listen to the voice of God. And then you find a way to do what you can do to be an encouragement and a support for your pastor. And I'm going to give you five of these as we kind of wind this thing down. Five of these encouragements that you can do for your pastor. And let me just forewarn you, because some of you will listen and say, well, that was, that was very helpful, very helpful. I don't intend to do any of those, but that was very helpful, very helpful. No, we want you to be able to hear them and say, yes, Lord, not yes, but. You know the difference? But is a verbal eraser that scratches off everything that you just said yes to. So as I'm going through these five, and I'll make it easy. I'll start with R, so it's kind of simple to remember. As we look at these, there's going to be something that's a response in you on some of these to just say, well, yeah, but granted, I'm not going to have time to cover in detail all the possibility of exceptions to these things. But don't think that just because you can think of an exception that you must apply it. So listen without the yes, but, and listen in the context of yes, Lord. Got it? Okay, so here's five things you can do to encourage you. Uh, write these down, Rodney. Um, first, recognize his gifts and his calling. This is a person who has been called by God, equipped by God, given as a gift to the church. You're thinking, well, where is that in the Bible? I'm so glad you asked. Here it is, Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. He gives pastor teachers to the church. That's a part of God's design for how the church is supposed to function. He gives shepherds, pastors to the church so that the pastor teacher can build the church up to maturity in Christ. Now, it's an interesting thing. Paul is writing 
the letter to the Ephesian church, he's writing another letter to the pastor of the Ephesian church years later, a guy named Timothy, a young pastor. And in in 2 Timothy chapter 3, after he has been talking about a variety of other things to encourage young Timothy, you hear some of the same language from Ephesians 4 showing up in 2 Timothy 3. He says, now, you're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then over in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So how is your pastor supposed to equip you for the work of ministry? Through the word of God. They're not coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas from the latest conference they went to. Pastors are there to equip you through teaching of the scriptures, the preaching of the word of God. That's what God calls us to do. So recognize the unique calling and giftings that come along with that. And so also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Recognize the gifts. If you can do all that, you don't need a pastor. God knows that you all can't do that. And so he raises up someone who is to be the shepherd of you, who is the pastor teacher in that church. And so let them preach the word of God and encourage them by that. Sometimes when you call up to the office and say, hey, I really like to talk to the pastor and I really need to talk to him now. He is, he is not here right now. Well, where is he? I thought he worked there. Yeah. He's actually working. Well, he can stop doing that and come take care of me. Yeah, well, he is taking care of you and the others who are going to be there Sunday morning. He's studying the scriptures in order to be able to give you a home-cooked meal instead of fast food, spiritual stuff. Let him study. Let him use his gifts. Let him be faithful to that calling. So recognize his calling and his gifts. Second, hold on now. Respect him as a man with authority. Why should he have authority? Because God says so. <laughs> he does. And now in verse 7 of that Hebrews passage, chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, considered the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay, I can consider that. That's good. I, I can remember. That's fine. But then in verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders. You ever had that little hair stand up on the back of your neck? I'm not sure about this obedient stuff. Uh, I'm not sure about the next thing. Submit to them. I want to use that word but really bad right now. No. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he gives a reason why. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do it with joy. And not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Respect them as those who have authority. Now, you got, in our culture, you got two things weighing in against that happening in any given church. One, you're an American. Ain't no leader telling me what to do. We are, you know, we're free people. Nobody can tell us what to do. We told King George, and we tell everybody since. Ain't nobody telling me what to do. We won't even go there. But not only are you a citizen of the United States of America and claim those freedoms and nobody can tell me what to do, you're also a Baptist. <laughs> I mean, you talk about a double whammy. Uh, 
We get to vote on these things in Baptist church with the congregation of Paul. They can't tell us what to do. Well, you can designate that authority biblically and say, we're going to submit to the leadership of our pastor. Well, no, 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 that's not what that means. That's not all it means, but it definitely means some of that, right? And so let's figure out how to do that, how to submit to the authority that God has ordained over us. We don't like authority. Let's just own it. We don't like authority. You don't have to teach anybody to not like authority. Sit, sit, sit down. Don't, don't, don't go up those steps. Don't, no, no, don't stick your fingers in the socket. No, you don't have to teach a child to want to do everything you just said no to. We're, we're, that's inborn. So we want to respect the authority that God assigns there. And, and let's follow up on that. Let's let that shape itself according to the fear of God. I'm going to have to give an answer for every moment when I defied authority. When I pushed against it, when I said, no, I'm not following that, or no, that can't be right, or no, I won't do that, I'm going to have to give an account to the Lord for my own response there. So I want to do that in the fear of God. I want to do it well. I want to know that there are consequences, and I want to be able to answer rightly, Lord, yes, I did respect him as a man of authority. Yes, I did recognize his callings and his leadership. Thirdly, resist your own presumption to try to usurp pastoral leadership and assume that you know equally as well as he does about whatever's going on. And you can be the one who calls the shots. Presumption inserts ourselves in a position where we think that we know better. That we can do as well as. That we should have the right to. And, and then we begin to push ourselves into that position where we want to do it. And so when that happens, factions and divisions and party spirits begin to develop in the church. And, and it's us versus them and we versus they. And all of a sudden we haven't got time for kingdom work because we're trying to figure out who's in charge and who's got the power. The guy's going, uh, the power's from on high. And it's described in my word so therefore, let's not be presumptuous to think that everybody's got exactly the same place of authority. And not everybody has the right to be able to speak with the same voice to any given issue. Collectively, as a congregation, the, the, the voice rests in a congregational polity, yes. But who's going to bring the issues to the church that are representing directional leadership that are following the scriptures? You need leaders to do that. God's ordained that there will be pastoral leadership to do that. Now, so we have to ask questions. We have to walk through a process of thinking, am I one of those people? The answer is, I think, for every one of us, well, yeah, we are. We, we all have to deal with that. So here's some questions to think about. Do I think that I know better on things that are going on in the church? Do I think that I know better than my God-called, spirit-directed, biblically-trained pastor? If I think I know better i got to be asking the second question. Why do you think that? Well, I've been in church longer than he has. Okay. Why do you think that? <laughs> Longevity doesn't mean anything necessarily in that regard. could, but if one has the training, the calling, and the qualifications, you might want to think about deferring and not presuming at that point. Before I criticize and register my doubts about where church leadership is trying to take us, maybe, maybe I need to pause for a minute and check out my own heart motivation first. Maybe there's something, maybe it is me. 
You know, and people start that by not admit, not intending it, but they'll say, well, maybe this is just me, but they don't mean it's just them. They're pretty sure they got it right. So, no, check your own heart first. Third question, am, am I allowing seeds of past distrust that have been planted in me by other failed pastorates in the past? Are they, are they slanting my perspective on any other pastor that I have after that point? Oh, when I was 12 years old, the pastor of our church did whatever, and I've never trusted a pastor since. Well, you know what? That's on you, not them. It's not the next pastor you're dealing with. It's, they can't take the blame for every pastor in human history. Remember, the benefit of the doubt, grace to fail, that kind of thing. Don't, don't bring all those things to the table. Ask yourself, what are the main objections? What are the, the main points and causes for my resistance to any kind of change in the church? Maybe, maybe you're just that Eeyore seller voice. What do you think if we know? My dad used to talk about business meetings. He said it didn't matter whatever business meeting we ever had in the history of our church. He said there have never been a unanimous vote. There's always at least six who voted against anything and everything. It wasn't always the same six, but there were at least always six. He said we called them Mr. and Mrs. Felt Led. What? He said, well, we felt led not to vote for that. Mr. and Mrs. Feltled, that's a good description of them. I call them Eeyore. He called them Feltleds. But these are the ones who's just like, it doesn't matter what the change is. It doesn't matter what the idea is. I'm against it. Going out the front door. And then the last question is, am I falling prey to the Aaron-Miriam syndrome? Who are Aaron and Miriam? Uh, related pretty closely to a guy named Moses. And in Numbers 12, you see them demonstrating the spirit that we're talking about here. Uh, the question was vocalized when they said it this way. They were objecting to where things were going. It was not going well. All they got to eat is food from heaven. Horrible thing. The only thing they had to drink was water from the rock that would never fail them. God-given water. And all they did is complain. Want to go back to bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so they're, they're griping about everything. And, and th then this is what they say out loud. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? I've been in churches where that question, does God only speak to the pastor? Doesn't he speak to the rest of us? The end of this particular verse says, and the Lord heard it. Suggesting that maybe they didn't really want God to hear it, but the Lord heard what they said. And so the Lord then begins the process of walking through the, the whole thing. He says, I've, I've spoken to the prophets too, visions and dreams. I've, I've done that. And I've, I've spoken to other people in various times and various ways. I've done that. But with Moses, I've spoken face to face clearly and not in parables. Talk to this man. And here's my question for you guys. He beholds the form of the Lord. So why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You had no fear of God. You, you're, just, you're just like free agents out there saying stuff. Don't do that. Now, quickly, Rodney is not Moses. I'm not Moses. Only Moses is Moses, right? And so we're not saying that, you know, we get 
pastors get it directly from the Lord and nobody else has to say it. That's not what I'm saying at all. But doesn't it seem wise, doesn't it seem prudent for us to ask the question before we go on the attack of, of the direction and the leadership of our pastors, who am I and what right do I have to usurp what God has granted as a responsibility for that one that he has placed in responsibility over us? I don't know what this pastor in Tucson went through. This guy's name is John Beeson, but, but I think he reflects a lot of what we see in the life of church. He's, he said this, criticism will never convince a pastor you're somebody to be trusted. I just, pastor, I just, need to, I just need to tell you this, uh, and it's because I love you. Oh, boy, I'm going to put on the whole armor of God. Here, here it comes. They're going to love me a little bit, and it's not going to feel like it. And so I'm, here I am. He says, criticism will never convince a pastor that you're someone to be trusted. Some of the most dangerous people in a congregation are those whose theological knowledge surpasses their character. I'll take a thousand theological simpletons who reflect Christ's heart before I'll take one arrogant theological genius. Wow. Okay, let's, let's be careful to not let our presumption push us into a position where we think we always know better than the pastor. He didn't tell me to say that. That's me. Okay? Fourth thing. Remember that this dear brother, is going to have to give an account for you. I grew up in the days of I Love Lucy. And Ricky Ricardo would say, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> and so when, when the pastors, this is going to be, a, I, I can't imagine the line in heaven for the pastors. Well, you see, here's, I got to give an account for these people. Let me, let me explain. <laughs> let me explain. You can't explain. Let them give an explanation. Let them give an account with joy, not with grief or sorrow. Let them do this because you you loved them. You made it possible for them to give an account for you without having to enter a plea on your behalf. God, be merciful to them. They didn't know what they were doing. Now, remember that he's going to give an account for you. Lastly, return his affections in the full measure of your affections. Just as God prompts him to love you, you love him many ways in return because your pastor loves you. That's why he's here. He loves you. He will shepherd you. Isaiah 40 says it this way. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Your pastor loves you. Love him back. What are we supposed to do this Sunday? Love him back. A lot of people have their pastors for lunch on Sunday. I don't mean they take him out to eat. I mean they eat him for lunch. No, love him. Love your pastors. One of the primary criteria that your search committee used to determine who they wanted to bring here and recommend to you for senior pastor, he needs to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He needs to love to teach and preach and study the word and, and lead from that posture. And he needs to be a shepherd who loves his flock. And they looked at a hundred plus resumes and they brought you a guy who had all three of those things in place. Now here's the thing. Rodney was here before. Donna was here before. You must have done pretty well because they came back. 
They sensed that you were going to love them back. So if you want a loving pastor, then be a loving congregation. Loving Christ, loving him, loving each other, and it will be a joy for him to serve you. And you're going to keep him here for a long time. And here's the sweet part about it. The kind of pastor you want will become that kind of pastor when you treat him with tender mercies and humble submissiveness and unconditional love. And then he will become even greater than the pastor you're bringing here now. He will become the man of God you really need him to be for Lawndale to become the church it needs to be. So treat your pastor well. Have a great season of ministry as God leads you in this next part of the journey. So let's pray. Father, thank you. You promise in your word that these things are true. Father, if, if we are to find our peace, our hope, our confidence, our trust justified, we are going to have that happen not by looking at each other, but only looking to Christ. And Father, we want to be able to affirm together that the leadership that you are affirming for us as Rodney and Donna come back here is such that they have a heart and a passion for you and a passion for this people and a passion for this community and the nations. That Christ be exalted as Lord over all. And so, Father, may it all begin in each of our hearts as we commit to you this very day that we want to walk in all things in the fear of God. We praise you for the privilege of doing so in Christ's name. Amen.